And I think people have to really get over that fear of facing this and dealing with it. It's not even just the money aspect of it. It's facing your mortality. And I think that's such a big component for people. They just don't want to think about it. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. This podcast is nothing short of a reality TV show. But what I have to tell you is all the stories are real, and these are just not paid actors. Our special guest today is Mark Zimmerman. He's a seasoned estate plan attorney with over a decade of experience helping individuals and families plan for the future. He co-founded the Zimmerman Firm with the goal of creating a welcoming and informative resource for people seeking guidance on this important aspect of law. Mark understands that estate planning is something that affects us all at some point and is committed to providing the knowledge and support his clients need to make informed decisions. And today, Mark comes to us with a wealth of information on how to ensure that the assets you have flow to the people you love in the easiest, least expensive, and seamless way. Mark brings to front beneficiaries, power of attorney documents, and shares both stories where these were executed correctly and the planning was done perfectly, and also shows and gives examples of planning gone wrong. So if you like reality TV shows, I have to tell you, you're going to love this podcast. And never, ever will you hear these three words again without thinking of this podcast, Power of Attorney. It is one of the most important documents that you can have to protect you and your family. Thanks for listening in, and please help me welcome our special guest, Mark Zimmerman. Mark, it is awesome to have you here on Financially Ever After Widowhood, and you are at a firm that has over 40 years of experience, which I am so excited to harness today because we're going to be talking about something that maybe people don't think is super interesting called probate. But for all of you non-believers, I have to tell you that what we're going to be talking about is more interesting than what goes on with Jersey Housewives. So stay tuned. Mark has some stories that he's going to be sharing that hopefully you are sitting down. Hopefully you're not driving a heavy vehicle because you're going to be shocked at some of the things that you did not know and things that unfortunately can go wrong. It's great to have you here, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to be here. I'm excited. And, you know, I think what's special about you, lots of things, but one of the things you can talk about something that is pretty complex, probate, but you do it in a way where it's just very understandable. So can we start there? What is probate? Who goes through probate? Do we all go through probate? What is it for? Okay. So probate is a process that you try to avoid. When someone passes away and they own assets, if those assets are owned in their individual name without a beneficiary designation, meaning like a retirement that leaves everything to a spouse, 
or a joint bank account that automatically merges to the joint survivor. If there's none of that, then that asset is that person's individual asset. And essentially it's frozen when they die. So no one can touch that asset, has access to that asset. So in order for someone to gain access to that asset, if there's a will, the executor named under that will has to take this will to the surrogate's court in the county where that person lived in and died in and submit it to the court and try to get appointed. Okay? And once that person is appointed as the executor, they're able to get access and control all of these assets. But this process of getting appointed, especially in New York, where 95% of my work is, it's really kind of become a nightmare. And it's really a result of COVID and the fact that the courts are understaffed and really haven't made an effort to get restaffed. So what happens is you have an asset that can't be touched. Let's say there's a will leaving everything to a surviving spouse or to children, and those assets need to be accessed for various reasons. They're kind of stuck for anywhere from six months to a year and a half. It can be stuck even longer if there's an estate litigation. So probate is something that you really want to try to avoid. But there are a huge number of assets that can fall into this bucket. Most people, almost everybody, has a beneficiary on their retirement account. That typically is required. So your 401ks, your 403bs, your IRAs, pensions, those typically are not things you have to worry about. But outside of that, most people are not setting up beneficiaries. Your bank accounts, typically you don't see a beneficiary. Your brokerage account, your non-retirement taxable account, no beneficiary there for most people either. So now you have an account that is, let's say, in your spouse's name. That's where his paycheck goes into. That's where all the bills are paid from. All of a sudden it's frozen. Yeah. So that's where you have to go to circus court. You have to be named as an executor. So when I think of court, the first things that come to my mind are dollar signs of expensive with legal fees. Do you have to have representation when you're going to court? It's very difficult to navigate the surrogates courts without an attorney. So I've done a lot of probates in the last 12 years. So I know exactly when I read a will, what documents need to go to the court. So if you go in and try to do it yourself, you would have to go to the court. You have to speak to the clerks. And I don't want to get myself in trouble with the clerks, but they're not the most helpful people in the world in terms of telling you what needs to get done because they're so busy doing their own work. They really can't take their time. Yeah. I imagine that they're overworked right. and let alone like I wouldn't even know what to ask. Exactly. Obviously being able to set up a beneficiary when possible, but talk to me a little bit more about the other areas that you talked about of if you're not going to set up a beneficiary on an account, making sure that the titling is correct. Cause we just talked about that situation where it's a right. checking account where his paycheck's coming in, money's going out to pay all the bills, the mortgage. Could that have been solved or bypassed that issue if that account was in joint name with not only the husband, but the other spouse? Yes. A joint account, if they're naming a spouse, would automatically pass the surviving spouse. But a lot of times people have their own businesses, their own LLCs, and they don't want to make those accounts joint for personal reasons. Maybe yeah. they're business partners. They can't do it. So yes, 
And then also some people just like to maintain their own accounts. I'm sure you see that. People go yeah. into a relationship and yeah. make everything joint. Yeah, Mark, I will actually piggyback on that. That's such a keen observation. We're seeing now more than any other point in history, partners, married or not, having separate accounts and many of them not even having one joint account. That is the new trend of marital finances. The reason why a lot of people do that also is for divorce purposes, because if you come into a marriage with assets and you didn't do a prenup, essentially in New York, if you keep your assets separate, those assets continue to be separate for the purposes of potential future divorce. So that's another reason why people don't want to commingle, aside from business reasons. And that's probably why you see that a lot. Yeah. And I will say from my perspective, when we are working on a matrimonial case as CDFAs, when the assets are separate in individual names, it can make things a little bit more clear cut, a little easier upon the division. But for purposes of someone passing away, can create an issue. So if you can't name a beneficiary, and if you're not able to have the title be joint on either checking a savings account, maybe it's a brokerage account, is there a solution to protect that from going into probate and having to go get a lawyer, go to surrogate's court, spend time, spend money, potentially find yourself not able to pay your mortgage and all of those bad situations? Yeah, absolutely. There's a fix. And I'll tell you that before COVID, for example, in Nassau County, I could get an executor appointed in two to four weeks. Now, that's for, fast. That used to be very fast. And now it's at least six months. That's, oh my that's what I'm seeing. So yeah. what happens is people come into my office now to do estate planning and they're like, I need a will. I got to get a will. And I tell them, okay, I hear you, but a will isn't enough anymore. It's not really enough under kind of today's landscape. So to answer your question, the way to avoid this probate process is to have a revocable trust. And you still have a will, but your revocable trust is a trust that you create during your lifetime and it's really activated during your lifetime. So you're the creator, also known as the grantor. You would be the trustee, meaning during your lifetime, you're the individual who's in control of this trust. And then you're also the beneficiary. And a trust is really just a piece of paper that creates an entity, the trust entity. And that piece of paper tells the trustee exactly what to do with that money. And so if you're the creator of your own revocable trust during your lifetime, the trust will say that you're the trustee, you're in control, and you're the beneficiary. So if you put any of your assets into the name of this trust, you still have complete control. The trust is going to say any income earned by this trust is yours. Any assets that you put into this trust, you can take out. It's almost kind of like an LLC where it's like you're still in complete control. It's just kind of a separate entity now. And even though it's a separate entity, you don't need to file a separate tax return. You're still reporting all your income on your personal tax return. But the benefit of this revocable trust is that during your lifetime, you can change, for example, your bank account from your statement, say, Stacey Francis. Say you have a Chase statement that says Stacey Francis. Your new statement is going to say the Stacey Francis Revocable Trust, Stacey Francis Common Trustee. But it's your bank account. When you sign into your hub, you're still going to see all your accounts. You're going to see your trust account. And it's almost going to be exactly like your previous checking account, except now it's in the name of this trust. And the purpose of that is the second that you pass away, whoever is named in that trust as the successor trustee 
as immediate control of the assets. I mean, literally immediate control. So you pass away, that person can go to the bank and take control of those assets with a copy of the trust. That's what we're doing a lot of today to avoid probate because there's really no reason to go through this process. And the truth is that in terms of me drafting documents, it's minimally more expensive to set up a plan that just has a will versus a will and a revocable trust. Now, you still do need a will because in the event that you don't transfer all of your assets into the name of the trust, your will will say, whatever I didn't put into this trust during my lifetime, it goes into this trust when I die. Because look, sometimes there's rogue accounts. Maybe there's a tax refund. Maybe there's a lawsuit. There still might need to be a probate. But if you can place 95% of your assets into that trust or most of your assets into that trust during your lifetime, you're really benefiting your beneficiaries and you're saving them a lot of trouble and expense and heartache and stress. So Mark, we just talked about like accounts, checking accounts, savings accounts, brokerage accounts, and non-retirement accounts. What about real estate? What about automobiles, boats, artwork? Are there other assets that can go into a revocable trust too? So one of the main ones that they're used for is real estate. We set up a lot of trusts and at the same time, we're deeding someone's home into that trust because they don't want their child to have to go through probate. If they want to sell that house immediately, they can go and sell that house immediately. So we're doing a lot of real estate. With artwork and other tangible personal property, I mean, you can't like put it inside of a trust. So what we do is we do an assignment document where that person assigns their ownership interest of the artwork or their jewelry into the trust. So this piece of paper, this assignment is proof that the trust owns all of those tangible personal property. And obviously it's better to be specific on that assignment, but sometimes we do blanket assignments of just all personal property. With businesses, LLCs, corporations, corporations, we would reissue stock in the name of the trust. With an LLC, we'll do an assignment of the ownership interest into the trust. And it's really important with LLCs because there you have an operating business. And if you own a single member LLC that runs a business and you die, that business account is frozen until there's an executor appointed. So like, of course, it's really important to get access to funds just so that the survivor has them. But you have a business that's operating and you can't pay bills. Like that's a whole separate issue. Hey, Raw. Yeah. Okay. You just scared the bejeebers out of me. Wow. So tell me, though, is there any issues with taxation that you have to think about? Let's say you have assigned the brokerage account. You put it in the name of the revocable trust. I have a great year in the market. I sell it again. I make $500,000. Which tax bracket? Is it still capital gains? Is there then a trust? Because we know that for some trusts, there's unfortunately higher taxes that can be due. Tell me a little bit about that. So this is called a revocable trust. Transferring assets into this trust is a non-tax event. It's like taking your wallet out of one pair of pants and putting it into another pair of pants. And oh my gosh, I love that. You're not changing anything from a tax perspective. Anything that you put into the trust, it's still yours for income tax purposes. Any sales are going to be treated as if they were in your own individual name. And then additionally, there's no estate tax benefit. So all of those assets are still included in your taxable estate. The other type of trust that you're referring to is an irrevocable trust. So we have a revocable trust, we have an irrevocable trust. And when you set up an irrevocable trust, that is 
a completely separate entity from you for tax purposes. Any assets that you put in there under most irrevocable trusts are considered a completed gift and you retain no ownership interest. So that's a whole separate podcast conversation. It is. And it's a complicated one. The word revocable, I mean, I love that name because revocable in my mind thinks like you can change your mind. So you can put things in, you can take them out. And my husband and I have a revocable trust and we had two properties in Stratton, Vermont, two condos. We put them in the revocable trust. We ended up selling them. Guess what? They come out. And we took those proceeds, bought one home, and then transferred that to the trust. My question with this, again, knowing that we can take things in and out, the beneficiary of the trust is, I think, my husband. But then if he passes away, then does it go to our children? Like, because you talked about making sure that your child has access to that real estate if they do need to sell it. What happens if it's a married couple mm-hmm. that both pass away? Are they both on the trust and then they have to name contingent beneficiaries their children? What does that look like? How do you make sure that if you both pass away together, which God forbid, I can't even think about, but if that does, that your kids then don't have an issue? So in a situation where we're dealing with a couple, and you're talking about a joint revocable trust. So that's, yeah, that's what we do have. Yeah. You and your spouse are on there. So you can do it one of two ways. Each spouse can have their own revocable trust, or you can have a joint revocable trust. And there's various reasons why you would want joint versus separate. Kind of gets into the same issue as I have to keep my business separate, or I like to keep assets separate. But let's talk about a joint revocable trust. So in a joint revocable trust, it typically provides that you're both the grantors and you're both the beneficiaries during your lifetime. You're both the trustees. The trust can provide that you can act independently or together, or you have to act together. Typically with a spousal situation, you can act independently, meaning either of you can unload the whole trust independent of the other. Although if you go into the provisions, some trusts say that both of you would have to act together. One spouse passes, the surviving spouse becomes the sole trustee, sole beneficiary. Surviving spouse then ultimately passes. So that's what you're asking about. What happens in that situation? There's two different designations made within the trust document. You have a trustee. So there'll be a successor trustee or successor trustees coming in now that have control of this trust agreement. When both spouses pass away, the trust now becomes an irrevocable trust. And The value of that property would be included in the surviving spouse's taxable estate. If there's an estate tax, if not, then there's no estate taxes due. The assets in that trust are going to get a stepped up basis because that's what happens when someone passes away. Meaning if you bought that house for $100,000 and it was worth a million dollars when you both passed, that $900,000 capital gain essentially disappears. So if the new trustee goes to sell that home, there's going to be zero capital gains tax due, which is great. So the trustee is the person now is in control of this asset. And typically, let's just say in your situation, how many children do you have, Stacey? Two. Two children. So I'm assuming you love both your children equally. I Uh, do. And I know my uh, son is listening to this podcast. So Sebastian, I love you so much. But Samantha, (laughs) I love you too. So typically a trust would provide that the assets are split into equal shares for each child and they're held in separate trusts for the benefit of each child. And Either the children could be the successor trustees, or if they're minors, they'll be on their behalf. Maybe you're putting a 
professional advisor you're close with, maybe you're putting in family to be the trustees, whoever. So the trustees are going to be control of the money for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And that's all really provided within there. And then the trust continues on as an irrevocable trust, which now the trust, once it becomes irrevocable, it will be filing its own income tax return and paying taxes at a much higher bracket unless it kicks out the income every year, which is what they usually do. And if you and your husband live a full great life, typically the trust would just provide your children would be much older that the, when you're both gone, the assets just go outright to your children. People who accumulate very significant wealth, they don't always do that. And they might, instead of having all these assets go out to children, there might be reasons to keep this money in further trust so that it stays in trust for their children, then kind of continues on for grandchildren. So that's a whole separate conversation of kind of the planning on that type about how assets pass on to the next generation, but that would all be in the trust. And Mark, is there ever an issue where, again, I pass on, unfortunately, my husband, Michael, passes on, and now Samantha and Sebastian are each owning a share of the trust, and the assets in there are not super easy to split like a brokerage account. Brokerage account, checking account, pretty darn easy to be able to split equitably. Now we've got a house. And my kids get along pretty well, but sometimes they don't. Let's say one of them wants to keep the house in Vermont and the other one is really dead set against it. What happens there? I try to address this in the planning process. For example, if a parent identifies that there's going to be issues with the home, we typically direct that it's sold. But let's just say that's not there. Let's just say your children are the trustees, right? So it's really... Okay. So they are directing... So they're the directing trust. and they to come to some sort of agreement. If there's a good estate attorney in place, they're going to try to negotiate a compromise. We'll get appraisal on the home. One wants to keep it. The other doesn't. There'll be a buyout. Okay. So then maybe one can buy out and hopefully there's enough assets. Or then each one would own 50% and then one would pay rent to the other. We try to find solutions in these situations. We don't want litigation. Litigation is the worst. You never want to have to hire a litigator. You don't want to have each child signing up with their own attorneys. Once you get litigation attorneys involved in these type of situations, they're not really trying to solve it immediately. They're trying to win the battle for their client, which often means it's going to be very expensive for both siblings. So me, when I'm involved in this type of situation where I represent the trust and I'm working with both siblings together... I try my best to resolve these type of situations. And most of the times I do. But every now and then you just get a pair of siblings who have issues that date back to childhood and they just want to fight over the smallest things and not agree and they want to litigate. So it's hard. And in those situations, we try to address these things in the planning to avoid that. But it's not always avoided. So I feel like all of the podcast listeners need to go home and talk to their kids tonight. I'm going to do it right now. Sebastian, Samantha, if you love mommy and daddy, you will get along even after we pass away. And so there we go. Mark, tell me, do you have any other examples of planning gone wrong or lack of planning gone worse? Yes. Let's start with the DIY planning. There's a lot of advertising out there for do-it-yourself estate planning. $100, $200, $300, whatever. It's a lot cheaper than me to do that. I promise you that. And the problem with the DIY plans is that it relies on you using the software properly. And even if you use the software property and it spits out a good document, you still need to execute the documents properly. 
And that's where I see most of the problems. So I had an estate where a man passed away with a marital child and a non-marital child, and he wanted to leave everything to his marital child. And he did a DIY plan. He did it, I don't know, eight years ago. The son sends me a copy of this plan. He's like, my dad did this. And I'm like, he didn't sign the will. <laughs> he, signed, <laughs> he signed like an affidavit behind the will. It was crazy. It was a revocable trust plan. So I ended up doing, in this situation, a deathbed will, which was contested by the non-marital child, and they had to pay the non-marital child a settlement to go away. And for all of you listening, a deathbed will is exactly what it sounds like. Someone who is on their deathbed and Mark is running there to try and beat the clock before they pass away to get it signed and executed, which like, I mean, I personally do not want to be doing paperwork for my last few moments here on earth. I can't imagine anyone else. It's a tough feeling. Like I remember going to the hospital that day. The person passed away, I think a day or two later, obviously in really, really bad shape. And like, you don't want to see someone like that. You don't want to be having them sign documents when they're in this, just, it's bad. Yeah. So don't do a DIY plan. You only die once, right? (laughs) You should get your plan done right. Yeah, even cats, I truly don't believe they have nine lives. I mean, I'm even saying cats, I'm pretty sure they're just doing that once too. In your financial planning, you see how people value how they spend their money and people value spending money on things that are so unimportant. And then when it comes to the important things, they start to tighten up and it just, yeah. what I do is I try to show the value. I show the value that I create as an attorney and whether it's me or any attorney, it should really be using an attorney for doing this type of stuff. I know we're coming up to the end, but I want to give you space for more, any other advice or pieces specifically about revocable trusts and yeah. advice you might have. More than revocable trusts, I think that at minimum, have your beneficiary designations lined up. A big problem with like, when you're married and you have minor children, if you have assets, they're going to pass through a will. What happens is the court appoints a court attorney to represent the minor children, which takes time and it's expensive. And the point of that is that the court attorney has to make sure that minors can't represent themselves in court. They're under 18. And the parent can't represent them. The court has to appoint an attorney to represent them. This process, first, the estate has to pay for this court attorney. The court attorney comes in and reviews the will and makes sure everything was kosher. And then they submit their report to the court. If it's a good will, they're always going to agree. But it delays this whole process that's already six months, potentially another six months. And now you have a widow with minor children and they can't get access to funds. You just don't want that situation. So either have a revocable trust or if all your accounts are joined or all your accounts are beneficiary designated, that should be the bare minimum. Bare, bare minimum. Yeah. And I would say... If you have questions, this is not something to DIY. It is really not. I've learned many times trying to build furniture. And we all know that the stakes for building furniture are pretty low. My family has realized that I should not be building furniture. I suck at it. And I've realized that don't use this as a learning experience that you sucked at estate planning. It's too high stakes. Practice on IKEA furniture. Even if you suck, the stakes are very low for that. It's worth it to pay the money. And I will quote an amazing woman who shared that if you want to show your family you love them, 
put all of your estate planning, including the right beneficiaries, the right titles, and a proper executed revocable trust in place. That's the final and last thing that you can do to show them that you love them. Yeah, it's that. And it's also just being proactive in general. We have time for one more story? Yes, especially because your stories are so good. We have an estate right now where someone felt like, and I heard this story after the fact through her friends, that she, a wealthy lady, and she didn't do her will. She only did a will, not with us, with someone else, but we're handling the estate right before she passed. And she was superstitious. She thought if she did a will, then like the universe was going to conspire and she was going to like die after doing the will. You know, it's like people get into their heads about doing these things because they think it means something bad's going to happen. And what happened was in her case, she tried to leave most of her assets to charity and she actually disinherited her family, not married, no children, her heirs. And they're contesting the will and it's really expensive. It's going to delay things. And it's because she waited till the last second. She just didn't really take the necessary steps to make sure that what she wanted to accomplish was accomplished. And it's because she was scared. And I think people have to really get over that fear of facing this and dealing with it. It's not even just the money aspect of it. It's facing your mortality. And I think that's such a big component for people. They just don't want to think about it. I am superstitious as well, but I got myself an evil eye bracelet. And I will tell you, Mark, I feel like I can take on the world. I'm not going to start like walking the plank and see if I fall off the boat and stuff like that. But if you're really that superstitious, then go and get what you need to get, get an evil eye bracelet, go do whatever you need to, but don't skimp on actually planning. And I get it. I mean, one of the biggest reasons on the side of prenuptial agreements, which are agreements that are signed by both parties before they're buried. Unfortunately, quite a few of them are given to the other partner at the last minute. Yeah. And it's just because of fear of nervousness. But now you've gotten yourself in a situation where that can easily be contested that someone was signing it under duress. Whereas yeah. with the will, someone leaving it to the last minute can be contested that it wasn't really thought out or maybe the person wasn't of able mind or maybe they were being pressured at the time. And so earlier, the better. And I know for me personally, I feel like I can sleep at night. There are so many things to worry about in this world and so many things that you see when you turn on the news, which I try to be very careful about not watching too much news. This is something that you have control over Mm -hmm. that you can take care of that you just don't have to worry about anymore. Yeah. So on that note, Mark, how do our listeners get a hold of you? You can reach me. I work near Grand Central in Manhattan, 40th and 3rd. You can email me, mark at theestateattorney.com. And you can also visit us, the Zerman firm. And our domain name is theestateattorney.com. My phone number is 212-519-514. And, you know, I actually pick up my own phone. I don't have it go through a uh, receptionist. And that always shocks people. But I like it. Yeah. And I can vouch for that. That is true. And for all of you listening, all of that information, if you didn't get a chance to jot it down, don't have a worry at all. It is all in the show notes, as well as a link to Mark's website so that you can get some more information. And I just want to say thank you so much, Mark. This was shocking. A lot of the people were listening at how fascinating probate is. And now people are going to be like bringing up probate in cocktail conversations and sharing all your juicy stories. 
So thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's just about helping people plan, helping them avoid trouble. And the biggest component of this is that you want to be able to grieve for someone who just passed. And the last thing you want to have to deal with is going to court. So if you can avoid that, why not? I agree. Thank you. If this podcast didn't scare you, I'm not sure what will. If you love the people in your life, it is your gift to them. It is your love, Larler, by making sure that the documents you create don't have mistakes and are executed properly. So many clients come to us and have challenges with transferring assets to their name from their late spouse. Don't let this be you. Don't let this be your loved ones. If you have any questions about your finances and the mechanics of what your investment portfolio needs to look like now that you are on your own, please reach out to me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. You can also visit our website at www.FrancisFinancial.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be seeing you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. All you have to do is give us a call and the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again, 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.